Happy anniversary, Embassy Church. We've gathered this morning in particular on this Sunday to remember that five years ago our church constituted, covenanted together, signed a statement of faith, church constitution, church covenant, and began having weekly services. In God's grace and providence, we've still continued to meet and gather. And as we get started in Matthew 11, where we left off in our series through Matthew, I want to tell a brief story that I think relates really well with this text I'm about to read. And it's a story about something that happened before Embassy got started with me. Eight years ago, spring 2011, I was doing a pastoral internship in Washington, D.C. It's also the same time I infamously dressed up as Abraham Lincoln and almost got arrested. You can uh, Google that, Abraham Lincoln getting fined uh, and read and hear about the story, but shortly after that infamous moment in my life, I uh, started reaching out to some Chicago churches about the possibility of returning to the Midwest, where my wife and I uh, first lived when we got married, and uh, planting a church out here. And I started researching the area, trying to find a, a church here in Chicago that would be a support to me and my wife as we were getting the work started. So it's Spring 2011, I'm sending out these emails, and one of the pastors writes me back the next day, and he says that he was praying for his church to grow, and in particular, he was praying that their church would receive leaders from the outside, because as he looked around his congregation, they were struggling in terms of uh, finding leaders. And he thought that there's just not enough time to build up leaders from within, so if they're going to grow and really rejuvenate the life of this church, they're going to need leaders from the outside to move into the area. And he then told me uh, that he didn't just pray for leaders in general, but he prayed specifically that if the leader had come from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, that would be sweet. And so sure enough, he thought that this was God's providence, that this was not a coincidence, that maybe he was praying, and that as I'm typing the email, what seems to be at almost the exact same moment, he's praying, I'm typing, and then he gets the email, he's like, maybe God is up to something to want to get a church started in Chicago. I don't know about you, but my wife and I, we heard that story uh, and saw it unfolding, and we're thinking, yeah, God's up to something here. Two months later, my sister Christy and Ryan, who are members of our church, founding members when Embassy got started, got a job offer in downtown Chicago. And even though we weren't yet committed to this whole Chicago idea, they, by taking a step of faith, said, God, we do, we do think you're up to something. We're going to take this job, we're going to move to Chicago, and we're going to help Phil and Christine get a new church started. Those are a few brief moments of a series of encouraging things that were in our life that was leading us toward moving from Washington, D.C. to embassy, which we didn't know it would be embassy. Um, for in fact, when we first moved to Chicago, the entire vision, so this was spring 2011, I finished the internship and I spent a year doing collegiate ministry, and I spent all that time uh, in preparation for planting a church in the city of Chicago, like Chicago proper, and in a more multicultural, ethnic, very densely populated neighborhood. And so I was doing research, and I was doing planning, and praying, and walking the city, and uh, making multiple trips from D.C. to Chicago before we moved our family. 
And then we moved and joined the church of the pastor that I just told you about that sent me that email back and thought, yes, God is up to something. And after five months of moving there, I had a very challenging day. It was a Saturday in May. I don't remember the exact date on the calendar, but a Saturday in May, I had some conversations that made it clear that the church plant that we had prayed for, the church plant that we had raised money for, the church plant that we were planning to move all the way across the country from D.C. to Chicago and plant it there, it was not going to happen the way we thought it was going to happen. And everything was put on pause. And I remember going home that day to my wife and sharing the news of what was happening in that story and her and I just being like, God, what are you doing? We thought you were doing something. What are you doing? And I want to just leave you hanging there, and I'll tell you the rest of the story and why we're here now at the end of the message. But with that in mind, that moment, maybe you've had a similar moment of asking, God, what are you doing? What's going to happen next? I had this expectation, and that's not what happened. That's where we found ourselves my wife and I, in Chicago in May of 2013. This is where John the Baptist finds himself. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 11. On page 816, starting in verse 1, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I'm going to take this text, and it's really easily broken into two parts. Really, we want to focus in on verses 2 through 6. Chapter 11, verse 1, really should be a part of chapter 10, as it is a concluding sentence that Matthew puts at the end of each big teaching block in Jesus' big teaching sections. If you look at Matthew 10, you'll notice that Matthew 10 is one long sermon about the mission of the disciples and Jesus sending out disciples. And then Matthew, at the end of each long teaching block, like the Sermon on the Mount, look at the end of Matthew 7. Now at the end of Matthew 10, 11, 1, you see this phrase again about Jesus finishing his teaching. So it's a transitional verse, verse 1. So as we look at verses 2 through 6, there's really two simple ideas. John is asking a question. Jesus is providing an answer. I want to take it in those two parts, and I want to say it this way. John's question is everyone's question. All of you are asking the same question John is. And Jesus' answer is everyone's answer. Let's take the first part. John's question is everyone's question. Why is John asking this question in verse 3? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We'll look back up at verse 2, and you'll see the context should give you a big idea. Now, when John heard in prison, that's the reason why John is asking the question, are you the one 
because John is in prison. Now, why is John in prison? At this point in Matthew's gospel, all we were told in Matthew chapter 4 is that John was put to prison. We don't really know why. You'd have to read forward to Matthew chapter 14 to find out that it was because he was speaking out against King Herod. For King Herod was committing all kinds of atrocious uh, extramarital Acts, and John spoke out against this, and when you speak out against a powerful, tyrannical, egomaniac ruler like King Herod, well, you get thrown in prison. So, in other words, you could put it this way. John the Baptist was doing right. He was doing righteousness and justice and standing up for the truth, and for doing that, he suffered. And so now John is asking, Jesus what is going on? I was expecting something else. And now because his expectations weren't met and things weren't working out like he thought, he had questions and doubts. Matthew chapter 3, the scripture reading that I had, if you want to turn back again just so you can see it yet again, in verses 11 and 12, let's just remind ourselves, what did John the Baptist expect when Jesus came? Look at 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming. Remember that question? Are you the one who is to come? He who is coming, namely Jesus. He is mightier than I, and his sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Hopefully some of you might remember this message. This is when I told you my son John, when he was two years old, every night before bed or at dinner time, we asked John to lead us in prayer, and he would say, big fire, little fire, amen. John was obsessed with fire. John the Baptist, in this story, is also wanting fire. He wants the big fire, if you know what I mean. He is asking for judgment. He is expecting judgment. Jesus to come and punish evildoers, like King Herod, an unjust, corrupt king who says he's the king of the Jews, but really he's just some puppet king of Caesar. And what has Jesus been doing? Not overthrowing the government, not taking John out of prison. In fact, look back at Matthew 11, verse 2. And notice that it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, meaning he has heard reports about what Jesus is doing, and on the basis of those things that Jesus is doing, he has doubts. Precisely because of Jesus' actions, And at this point in Matthew's gospel, we know what sort of actions he's been doing. He's been preaching, announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, and he has been healing people, and he has been sending out disciples. That's the quick recap of Matthew's gospel in terms of Jesus' public ministry. That's the deeds of the Christ. John hears about this, and he asks, is he really the one? Why would John have such unmet expectations? Jesus has been teaching people, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, instead of take up your sword and fight back against Romans. Are you the one? That's not what I was expecting. 
Jesus has been in Galilee instead of in Jerusalem, where Herod is and all the power is. He's been with tax collectors, fishermen, poor people, instead of mixing it up with the lawyers and the wealthy and the religious elite and political officials. Not going to create an uprising over King Herod with a bunch of fishermen, a bunch of lame, diseased nobodies. Jesus has been getting his knees dirty and spending hours before the Father in prayer instead of getting his hands dirty by bringing the fire and the sword and the blood of his enemies. John heard about all of these things, and he is wondering, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And I believe John's question is all of our questions. More generally speaking, we do ask this question in our culture, don't we? Valentine's Day was Thursday. How many of you were thinking, is she the one? Is he the one? Before the wedding day, during a season of dating, courtship, and engagement, many of you asked that question. Is she or he the one? Putting your hopes and dreams, looking, gazing into someone's eyes? They're going to be the one. After the wedding, many of you might still be asking that question. I don't know. Is she the one? Is he the one? I thought so, but I'm not so sure anymore. Much like John the Baptist. I thought Jesus was the one, but I'm not so sure. Many people ask this question about churches, pastors. Some people have been looking for a church for quite a while. And they come here to embassy and they're thinking, is this the one? Is Pastor Phil, is he going to be the one? Is he the preacher that I want to submit myself to? And this is the community of people I want to do life with? Especially some of you that I know have been hurt by pastors and churches. Where they have been abusive or unfaithful. How many times have you doubted and questioned and maybe been skeptical or cynical about other churches because of your unmet expectations at previous congregations? The heartbreaking reality of many of us in this community is that some are going to look at scandals of abuse and not just doubt, is that church the one, but really doubt Jesus altogether. Is he the one? Really, should we keep following Jesus if Jesus is allowing all of these things to happen in the church? This hits close to home, not just here, but even abroad. This weekend, if you didn't know, Houston Chronicle has chronicled 20 years of 700 different abuse cases in Southern Baptist churches. Although this is not a big part of our DNA or who we are, we, in fact, do partner with the Southern Baptist Convention. Are we another one of those churches? If scandals and abuse continue to press on, is Jesus the one? Should I really follow Jesus? Isn't this many of us today as we gather? Isn't this our question? Not just in the general sense of, is she or he the one? Is Jesus the one? In the more specific sense. Some of you here today, you may not be following Jesus. You may not consider yourself a Christian. You may be wondering, is Jesus really the one? Should I turn my whole life around because of a man that lived on the earth 2,000 years ago in modern-day Israel-Palestine area? What's so special about him? Is, is that really worth upending my whole life and trajectory of where I was going, my goals and values, because of him? 
And many of us who are Christians, like John the Baptist, we've been committed. We have been baptized. We've joined churches. We're all in. We've put our faith and hopes in Jesus, but maybe it's not because of church trials and struggles, but general suffering that comes into our lives and unmet expectations, we start asking, I don't know, is it worth it? Like John the Baptist, we have doubts of whether or not Jesus is the one. I know many of you right now, you know the answer is yes, yes, Jesus is the one. But that doubt creeps in, and we're just not sure. Because our present circumstances feel a lot like John the Baptist's present circumstances. We may not literally be in prison, but we're suffering because of pain or injustice, because of the consequences of people in leadership or those that aren't walking with the Lord. How many times have I, as a pastor, over the last five years, had to hear from people in this congregation that they're struggling with doubts about Jesus because of unanswered prayer, unmet expectation? Do you see what I mean? John's question is all of our questions. Just this week, as I was preparing for this message, I heard a pastor tell his story of doubts He was preaching a sermon about Jesus being the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. As he was in the middle of that message, in the morning service, he had a wave of doubt flood into his heart. For a year or so before he preached that message, various questions and problems were coming into his mind and heart, and they all came flooding into the sermon right there in that moment. He was able to push them aside and get through the sermon fine, and he said not too many people really noticed, but they had an evening service, and it'd be the same exact sermon. He'd have to preach again, and he went home before the evening service, and he just wept and wept. He started to get anxious and nervous. I think, how can I preach this? I'm not even sure Jesus is the truth. He said he was vomiting and throwing up right before he got up on stage and managed to get through it again. And the elders and pastoral staff at this church gave him a leave of absence and time to just figure this out. Why share that story? Because it can be pastors who doubt. If John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was the Christ, then any of us in this room might have doubts about Jesus because of pain and suffering and trials. Elder, deacon, deaconess, church member, regular attender, visitor, it doesn't really matter. As a church, we need to realize John's question is all of our questions. All of us have doubts. This is an age of skepticism that we live in. It is the air we breathe. You need to realize that this is normal. Doubts are different than unbelief. Doubts are people that want to believe, but they don't know if they can because of some situation or thought or question. Unbelief is just simply rejecting it and already coming to that settled conclusion or living your life in a way of unbelief. If Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, look down, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. If the greatest man born of a woman to this point in human history is doubting Jesus, well then surely you and I might struggle doubts in our lives. 
when things don't go the way we expected them. Do you remember that in John chapter 3, after he says that he's going to come with fire, the heavens tore open, the Spirit of God descended down like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. I don't know about you, but I think that should erase all the doubts, shouldn't it? How many of you would think, you know, it'd just be great if the heavens tore open and Jesus was right in front of me and we heard God say, this is the one. Why would you think back later and be like, oh yeah, that did happen. Maybe he is the one. Do you see what I mean, friends? Regardless of your past testimony of miraculous deliverances and mighty works of God that God's done in your life to confirm to you again and again, yes, he is the one, we still have doubt. The present becomes like this for many of us, and we can't see anything else but these big doubts in front of our face. And as a church, I just want to first simply acknowledge that if this is John the Baptist's question, that it very well could be our question. So therefore, Jude verse 20 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Embassy Church, for the last five years, we've had the great privilege of being able to be a place that as far as I've been able to observe, have been gracious and patient with people, doubters and strugglers, people who have come from churches where they've been hurt and abused. My hope and prayer is that we would be a place of refuge, but if we don't believe this reality, that many of us, even those of us who are members and regular attenders, that we too can have doubts, let's be merciful to one another. Let's be patient with one another. Let us realize that John's question is everyone's question. We all have doubts. We all deal with unmet expectations at one time or another. As I said not too long ago, the church is more like a hospital waiting room than the job interview. We should not gather weekly thinking everyone around here has got it all together except me. And we're measuring up one another like you would in a job interview waiting room. We're all sick and we all need the great physician Christ. So let's hear his answer. John's question is all of our question. Everyone has that question. Is he the one? Let's hear Jesus' answer. Let me read it again to you in verse 4 of chapter 11. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the deaf are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' answer is the answer for everyone, but what kind of answer is this? Are you the one, or should we look for another? A simple yes or no would have done just fine, Jesus, but yet again, someone asks you a question, and you somehow leave us with a proverb, or some Old Testament Bible verses, and what is he trying to say? He obviously doesn't flat out say, yes, I am the one. He doesn't rebuke John the Baptist. John, don't you remember that the heavens tore open and God the Father spoke down and said, I'm the one. Duh, dummy. You know, we should learn from Jesus. He's patient with John, is he not? He's merciful, as Jude says, to John, his cousin, biologically cousin and brother in the faith. What does he say? He says, tell them what you hear. Tell them what you see. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. 
want to take those in backwards order. Why would Jesus say, blessed are those who are not, and here's the word, and you'll know it when you hear it, scandalon. It's the word where we get scandalous from. Jesus, apparently, is a scandal. You ever had somebody in a conversation say, now don't get offended, and you know that what they're about to say is offensive? That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, John, don't be offended. Blessed are you if you're not going to be offended by what I'm saying to you, which then should get our our wheels spinning a little bit. Why would John the Baptist be offended by the way Jesus responded? Because Jesus is the one, and there is no one else to look for. And that, my friends, is offensive on two different levels. First, as you all know, that answer is offensive to many of our modern ears as we hear this. Jesus is the one, the only one, the only way to God. There is no other religion. There is no other person. There is no one else that you are looking for. Jesus is the one, not Embassy Church. Not Pastor Phil, not the elders of Embassy Church, not any other church or any church leader. Our job at Embassy is to point you to the one, not be the one for you. Because there is only one. Friends, put your hope in Christ. May this church be a Christ-pointing community. Your spouse is not the one. Your job is not the one. No house or material possession will satisfy the longings and fulfill the promises. It is only Jesus, just Jesus. In Christ alone, our hope is found. We must never look for another because we have already found the one. And this, my friends, is an offensive message. It is scandalizing. Buddhists do not have the one. Muslims do not have the one. No teaching of Hinduism and their many gods have failed to find the one. Joseph Smith has led many astray and not to the one, Christ, Jesus. He is the one. Just that simple answer is scandalous, offensive, and blessed are those who receive it, believe it, live their lives and have them radically upended with Jesus being the one for them. Blessed are you. Do you remember our series on the word blessed, makarios, well-being? The whole life is, is good. It doesn't mean everything is prosperous. It just means that everything is well with your life when you know that Jesus is the one and the only one. This church exists to make much of Jesus Christ. From day one, meeting in Sam and Erica's living room on September 7th, 2013, I tried my best to share a vision that Christ would be the mission. We exist to glorify Christ. And then you could just put a period behind that. Period. We are here to make much of Jesus. In our Sunday gatherings, in our weekdays, we want to make much of Christ in every tribe, tongue, and language because there is no other country, no other nation, no other religion that has what we have in Christ. 
That is why we exist and why we started five years ago. I remember sharing that evening, Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering and become like him in his death. Is that your prayer? Is that your heart? That he is the one and more than anything, as you gather weekly here and as you go live your life, I want to know Christ. Not just know him and doctrines about him, I want to know him relationally, personally. This is a scandalous message, not just because we're saying that he is the only way, but it is a scandalous message because the things he says to John the Baptist, go and tell them what you hear, go and tell them what you see, and then Jesus says this, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. If you didn't know, Jesus is a Bible scholar. Like, he knows the Bible frontwards and backwards. And this is a good example of his academic scholarship. Jesus, in this quotation, seems to take four different verses from Isaiah, put them in a blender, stir them up, and then voila! That's his answer to John the Baptist. Is Jesus the one or should we look for another? Let me quote you some Isaiah. Here's my answer. Why is that scandalous to John the Baptist? Well, let me give you two examples of why this response to John the Baptist is jaw-dropping. Turn with me in your Bibles to page 595 or Isaiah 35 in whatever Bible you're using, and I want to read to you a little selection from one of the Isaiah quotations that John the Baptist is getting from Jesus. Isaiah 35, verse 4 and 5 and 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. In other words, verse 4 is big fire. John the Baptist is wanting verse 4. But did you notice that Jesus does not quote verse 4? He quotes verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Turn to Isaiah 61. One more example. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. We already had this read earlier in the service. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. And then here's the phrase that Jesus quotes. To bring good news to the poor. Here's the phrase that Jesus does not quote. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Why would John the Baptist be offended? Because Jesus did not come in his incarnation to bring judgment, 
but to bear judgment. John the Baptist was expecting the fire. And Jesus quotes the Isaiah scriptures and leaves out the part where this coming one brings the fire, but instead brings the healing. And John the Baptist would know. He would get it. Can I put it really simply for all of you? If you're not following so far, here's what Jesus says. I'm going to quote four texts from Isaiah that show, I am the one, but you're staying in prison, John the Baptist. How many of you know Jesus is the one? Then he responds and tells you, yes, I am the one, but that doesn't mean your suffering is going to go away right now. At least not right now. And you're going to have to keep praying, and you're going to have to keep waiting. That's Jesus' answer. That's why Jesus' answer to John is the answer that all of us need. Yes, he is the one. Fulfillment of four different Isaiah prophecies about the coming one, the Messiah. Yeah, I'm the one, but I'm not the one you thought. And you're going to still suffer until the Messiah returns and comes a second time. This is where John is stuck in the middle between Christ's two comings. It's the same place we find ourselves. And this is why many of us struggle with doubt. Because we look at our present circumstances and we think, I don't know. I hear these nice stories of people praying and then boom, answers to prayer. That was a cool story, Phil. You prayed, pastor prayed, and boom, you got an answer. All right, we're going to plant a church in Chicago. I've been praying for something for 10 years. Haven't heard any answers. Think of John 3, 16 and 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come first to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Blessed are you if you're not offended by this, John. You're going to die in prison, and you're going to find out in Matthew chapter 14 that John gets his head chopped off, and he dies. Just like Jesus would. Because the way he would bear judgment, the way he would bring healing and salvation was to become everything that he said he was doing. Look again at our text in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus came as the Messiah that would be blindfolded. He'd be blind, and people would spit on him and mock him and say, if you're the one, then prophesy who hit you. Jesus came, and he would heal the lame by becoming lame as they pierced his feet on a cross and broke his legs in half. Jesus is the one who would bring healing to outcasts like lepers by becoming a leper himself, by hanging on a tree outside the gate of the camp where the lepers were. Jesus comes 
to heal the dead by dying in our place and rising again from the dead three days later. And this, my friends, is the good news that Jesus preaches to everyone, especially the poor. When you are doubting, hear and see Jesus. Hear his message of good news to even the poorest of the poor. And see him dying for you. Is there anyone else like this? That's why he is alone as the one. As Charles Wesley so eloquently put in his hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, Jesus is the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music to the sinner's ear, tis life and health and peace. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye bind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Jesus may not be the one that John the Baptist was expecting. But that's because he came as something so, so much better. Jesus may not be the one that you were expecting. As you look at the trials of your life, and they cause you to doubt, you might be asking, is he really the one? It's not what you were expecting when you signed up to follow Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to make it very, very clear. Sometimes following Jesus, receiving him by faith, means your life gets much more difficult. Too many times preachers want to sugarcoat Come to Jesus. Everything will be better. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. Everything will be happy. Jesus may not be what you were expecting when you first signed up, but this I guarantee you. He is so much better. So, so much better. So there I was, Saturday, May 2013, asking, God, what are you doing? This is not what I was expecting. Is Chicago really the one? Is this where we were supposed to move our family and start a church? Frustrated, disappointed, struggling. Some of you aren't going to like this story because God moved quickly, very quickly. It took less than 24 hours for a man named Sam Doyen to come up to me and ask, Phil, how's that church plant going? was not expecting to run into Sam, but I'm glad I did. Because I looked him in the face and I said, Sam, I just got to be honest with you. The church plant thing's not going really well at all. And he said, can we meet and talk about you reorienting your vision not to the city of Chicago, but to the northwest suburbs where I believe there is a need for a new church. And honestly, Sam had made that sort of pitch a few months before, and I was like, "Ah, I kind of like going to the city. That's where we've been praying. That's where we've been planning. That was the vision. And those expectations were unmet. And so at that point in time, I said, you know what, Sam? I'm a little bit more open-minded to that idea. Let's meet and talk. And for three months, We met and planned and prayed, got counsel, and started strategizing how we might start a church together. 
September 7th rolls around and we have our first ever meeting. And as you all know, five years ago on February 15th, 2014, Embassy came together. It's not what I was expecting. So much better. Let's pray before I cry all over you guys. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, I want to give you thanks now for Jesus Christ. We are here for him. We are here because of him. We are here because he is the one. We thank you for in whatever way the preaching at embassy, the teaching, the discipleship relationships has encouraged the believers that are here in this room and those that weren't able to make it today and those that are spread out all the way across the world. God, we're thankful. We're so, so thankful that your plans are always better than our plans. That even in those hard days of unmet expectation and disappointment, Sometimes it's the next day, sometimes it's months and weeks and years, but around the corner, you are the one that delivers, that fulfills, that hears our prayers and answers. You are the one that will bring the fire and judgment and make all things right. You will vindicate John the Baptist's death. You were vindicated three days later as you rose from the grave. God, help all of us leave here just full in our hearts, knowing you, you're it. You're the one that we've been longing for all of our lives. And we've been so foolish time and time again to put our hopes in anything else, in any other person, any other church, any other ministry. And so we pray that Embassy would be a place to help continue for years, decades, centuries, if you would have us to point people in the northwest suburbs to you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.